And this passage is a passage which would have been so familiar, uh, this setting to people in the ancient world, but it's still very familiar to me too because in North India where I taught, uh, there's a, in the center of Dehradun, North India, there's a large clock tower. I don't see Shivraj Mahendra here today, but Shivraj can tell you because he lives there too. But in, in uh, Dehradun, there's this large clock tower there in the center of town. And underneath the clock tower, there's a large grassy area, and there, it's a complete uh, perimeter of vehicles that, that converge. There's actually six roads that converge on that spot. And so it's the heart of town, and this clock tower looms up, and the daily laborers will gather at that spot on the grass beneath this clock tower every morning. And just like the ancient world, they get there hoping to be hired for a day's work. And if you get there early in the morning, there's a lot of men there. If you get there later on in the day, there's fewer, and some are there at the end of the day that never got hired. And you have to understand that uh, when you actually see it, as I've done many, many times, that the, the people that don't get hired, it is not simply that there's just a lot of, you know, not enough work to be done and these people just can't, there's too many laborers. They're last, as, as it dribbles on through the day, it's not just last in time, it's also last in rank. Because as the day goes on, people that are not hired are those that are elderly, that maybe not be as strong as the others, or often men with one hand, only have one hand, or a withered hand, and they just can't get hired quickly in the course of the day. And so when Jesus told this parable, this was a setting very familiar to them. We had a modern translation read to us, uh, which I think was simple, because you know, they talk about the, the hours of the day, and of course you realize that the day for the Jewish day started, uh, the working day started at 6 a.m., goes to 6 p.m., so 6 a.m. is the first hour of the working day. So he goes out and hires the laborers, and then he goes out again at the third hour. Uh, this would be 9 o'clock in the morning, hires more people. Goes out at noon, you're still standing around? Oh, come work in my vineyard. Goes out again at 3 o'clock, found still others. Finally, goes out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, the day goes till 6 o'clock. This, this is the proverbial 11th hour that we talk about in our own culture. This is, this is literally the 11th hour of the working day, of the 12-hour day. He hires still more. They work for one hour. And then, of course, the pay time comes. And as our text said, uh, they were paid what's fair, which was those days was a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. So everyone knew, the text just says, I will pay you what is fair, but we all understand, they all understood, I should say, that that meant a denarius. That was the, that was the given wage for the day. So when the, uh, they lined everyone up, he says, pay them from the ones who started last to the, the ones that came first. That's important. So he starts there, and he, he gives the denarius to the work, worker who worked for one hour. Now, when those who are down at the other end of the line saw that, they're like, Praise the Lord. They, now, they only expected a denarius, but the minute they saw the generosity of the landowner, they realized, they really did the calculations. You know, when it comes to pay, people calculate really amazing. You know, students who are very poor in math, when it comes to their pay, I found around here, they really got it figured out. And certainly, they, uh, they did this. And so, as it, went, as it unfolded, and you can almost imagine the joy that they had when they looked and saw the denarius, how quickly that turns into anger. 
in just a matter of moments, as they passed the denarius out, they realized, oh my goodness, we're all getting a denarius. And suddenly, what was once a moment earlier, just the expected wage, has a point of, of anger for them. How could you treat us the same? How could you do that? And the, and the refrain, which is actually not in the text, I mean, quite in the, the, the classic form, but basically, it's not fair. It's not fair, they cry out. I wanted to say something uh, just for the sake of the gospel here. The fact that Jesus Christ, God in his grace, has redeemed you and me from eternal, eternal damnation to his eternal kingdom, it's not fair, praise God. We're recipients of God's grace. And this text is, you know, if you heard a hundred sermons on it, you would probably hear a hundred on that point. Because that is the main, I think, point of this, is the, the power of God's grace to intervene and to speak God's word of grace to people that were not expecting it or deserving of it. In some ways, you might say this parable in Matthew functions a little bit like the, the parable of the, uh, the lost son in Luke's gospel, Luke 15. Same scenario. The, the, Jesus tells these parables, but they all often make similar points. You know, the, the younger brother goes out and wastes his father's possessions. He comes back and he's treated like a son. That's not fair. You never did a fatty clap for me. You see, it's the same scenario. And, and the father's generosity, his grace in the life of the younger son. This is a very, very familiar thing. For that matter, the thief on the cross, also in Luke's gospel. And Luke is the one that has the thief on the cross who at the there's the 11th hour for you, at the moment of his death, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he gets brought to heaven just like the rest of us. Now, that's the grace of God. But the other part of this parable that's never preached on, and since it's a very short time, i got to get to that part. The second theme really is not so much about the, the judicial side. That's the, I think the reason we read this the way we read it mostly is because we see this through judicial lenses. You know, you're guilty, you're declared not guilty, you deserve to be guilty, Christ bore your sins, therefore you're not guilty, that's grace, the grace of God. And that is beautiful and powerful. But the other side is, you know, the, the Bible actually develops two themes of God, Christ's work. One is the kind of redemptive, I mean, the, uh, the judicial side of being declared not guilty is the redemption side. And the redemption side is actually a slightly different idea we should remember. Because redemption is about being set free. And this is what's important for payment. This is where the money comes in. Why was anybody being paid? The reason they're being paid at all is because they were not slaves. Now, when you are giving money for, for working in your life, many of you work, uh, in fact, I'm just curious, how many of you right now are employed and you work somewhere doing something, draw, drawing money? Thanks be to God. It's a great thing, isn't it, when you, you know, get your check in the mail or you get the check from your account. Nowadays, it just comes into your account mysteriously. We hope that it appears every month. <laughs> Hopefully. But when you get that, when you get your payment, you know, and I, as a pastor, I used to tell my, my congregation this, and they discussed salary things. I'd say, you cannot pay me to preach the gospel. You cannot pay me to preach the gospel. There's no way. That's a very wrong trajectory to get into that. How much are you paying to preach the gospel? But what they're paying you for is because you're not a slave. You're a free person. 
So payment is always an acknowledgement of one's freedom. And this is where we get into this whole thing of paying the full denarius. Because when someone is enslaved, and this is where I think the gospel has to remind us, when we come into the, our, our salvation, some of us came early into the faith, and you've borne the heat of the day, serving the Lord. Others of you, certainly perhaps in this room, but I promise you people in your congregations that you'll someday minister to, have come late. They've come with a lot of brokenness, a lot of challenges, a lot of sin in their life, and they've met Christ. And we've given the message, essentially, and it's a true message, that if you come to Jesus, you're forgiven, and he has a whole new future for you. Thanks be to God. But actually, God has something more to say to them, doesn't he? Because he's not simply saving your future. He also saves your past. You know, when, when the Jews, when the, when the Israelites came out of slavery, another thing we, don't, we often miss in the whole redemption story of Israel's leaving their slavery is when they left slavery, they've been slaves for 430 years. And you would expect them simply, okay, now you've been set free, you crossed the, 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 uh, the Red Sea, and you're now in the promised land. And we kind of use that metaphor for our whole salvation experience, don't we? But no, what did they do when they left Egypt? What does Exodus says actually happened when they left Egypt? They plundered the Egyptians. We often read over that. They clearly says when they left, they plundered the Egyptians. They got gold and silver and jewels, all kinds of stuff from the Egyptians. Later on, if you think about it, the Ark of the Covenant, the gold for the Ark of the Covenant was melted down from Egyptian idols. Think about it. It's a it's really an amazing story, actually. But the Jews, they thought about this. You know, how much money did they get that day when they left? And then we don't know the answer. I love the rabbi's theology of the whole thing. They said they got all their back wages. In other words, all, even though they were enslaved for 430 years, in God's sight, they were always free. They were never slaves in God's eyes. That's what Egyptians said they were slaves. All the years you've been enslaved to sin, that's what the devil says you have been. In God's sight, you're free. You're always free in him. So you come to Christ, he not only redeems your future, he redeems your past. That's what Joel 2.25 says, I will repay you for all the years the locusts have eaten. All of them. That's the generosity of God. The generosity, the, the cross, is like a, like a pebble in a lake. It goes every direction. It goes into your past. I was counseling a young man. I was 25 years old, right out of seminary, had grown up in a happy home, had never really experienced like people's stories of brokenness. And fairly early on in my ministry, a man came to me and he was telling me about his situation. It was pretty shocking to me. I, I learned in seminary, I said, don't, whatever they say, don't, don't look shocked. <laughs> I kind of stormed me. I was like shocked, you know, I was trying to keep my cool. And he was telling me a situation. And so I kind of blurted out and said to him, well, I guess you feel like you're on plan B. He says, preacher. Plan B? He's, I've long ago blown plan B. I've blown plan C, D, E, F. I'm on at least G. And at that moment, I think the Lord gave me the word. Because I had no preparation for this. I said to him, 
But isn't it great that in the gospel, plan G can become plan A? That's the, what the gospel does. It can take whatever, whatever your past has been, whatever things in the past that even you're most shameful of, God actually redeems that and uses even that for his glory. I think a lot of these uh, people from new atheist backgrounds, they're the, they're the best evangelist to the atheist when they come to the Lord. Because God redeems their past. He uses everything in your past. And he uses it for his glory and his honor. If you ever go to Nepal and you ever get the opportunity to climb Mount Everest, there, and I haven't done that, by the way, but I, I'd like to, but I don't think it's past my time. Or I'm past its time, whatever. But there's a sign there that gives all the fees, you know, as you might imagine, not counting hiring Sherpas and all that. I think it costs $65,000 in terms of hiring Sherpas and all that, but just the fees for climbing Mount Everest today is $11,000 in fees. Okay, it's very expensive. That's per climber. So a team of seven is a lot of money to climb Mount Everest. That's how Nepal makes their money, one of their sources of income. But there's, what I loved about the sign, though, was that it, all these languages, you know, giving you the fees, and it comes down 11,000 U.S. dollars for American climber. But the, the, underneath it, it says, discounts available for lesser summits. Discounts available for lesser summits. There are people, perhaps some in this room, who think that because of your past, you're now only eligible to climb a lesser summit. You hear me? There's some people that you'll meet in your ministry that believe, absolutely they believe this, that God may in fact save them, but there's certainly a lot of ways he can't use them. That they can only apply for the B team. <laughs> they can only apply for lesser summits. I'm here to say that this text tells us when he paid them that denarius, they only worked one hour. One hour. He was I'm paying you all for those idle hours of idleness as if you'd worked the whole day. That's the power of the gospel. They walked away with the denarius just like everybody else because in God's sight, they're free. The lame are, are always walking. The blind are always seeing. The, the debt is always paid. The banquet is always prepared in the gospel. It's only we who see, see things through the eyes of brokenness. The gospel always sees things through the eyes of wholeness and God's plan for us. Retroactive redemption is the title of this message. That he, re, he redeems us not just to save us for some future. That's there. We celebrate that. But this is also about God saving our past. He never forgets it. You know, when Abraham Lincoln gave the second inaugural address in this country's history, it, it's one of the most amazing inaugural addresses, often said the most theological address ever given by American president. But I want to read you a little portion of that address. I don't know if it's theologically accurate, I'll let somebody else decide. But what he's saying in that address absolutely points to this point. He's, a, he's asking the country, he's speaking on behalf of the country, why has the Civil War gone on so long? They had no idea going this long. They thought it'd be a very quick battle. 
And it got worse and worse and worse. And every year it got worse. And thousands and thousands and thousands died. To this day, every conflict in American history, our whole history of deaths, does not match what we lost in the Civil War. And so he's reflecting on this, and this is what he says. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, and listen to this, until all the wealth piled up by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so stony said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, I don't know if that's true, but what, his, what he was saying was, it might be that all those slaves that came across, they had names, they had families, they had biographies. They were many princes of their villages. They were taken off of their property. They were put in slave ships. They, many of them, when the, when the storm got too high and they needed to lighten the load, they just threw them off the ship. They went into the bottom of the ocean. They came over here without names. They get put into to slavery. They're, they're beaten. They die. And a lot of blood was shed. And what he's saying is the Lord didn't, didn't forget a single drop of blood that was shed. And he said, and, and fortunately, I'm going to require every drop of blood from you. And every soldier that died was remembering every blood that had been dropped. That's what he's saying. The point being that God doesn't forget anything in your past. He remembers that. In fact, every bit of pain in our past, every bit of brokenness, the gospel addresses it, and the gospel redeems it. That's the power of this whole thing. That's the power of this text. That God declares us in the gospel to be truly free. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the scope of redemption. Not simply that you forgive us, which is a wonderful truth, but also that you redeem us. You purchase not only our present and future, but even our past. And your generosity is so great that you pay us the full day's wage because you yourself have been the one that bore the heat of the day. And Lord, we have all, we're all latecomers to the kingdom of God. We're all those that are undeserving, but we are now called sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we thank you for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.